We know that many of you consider Unorthodox a family show and listen to it with your children, which gives us great delight. So please be aware that some foul language may be used. This has been your obscenity warning. I got new pillows because I realized in 15 years in my current house, I never replaced my pillows. You do seem a little more more chipper this yeah, morning. Yeah, no, my, it's, it's life-changing. I've like, my pillows are, are flouncy and bouncy and I got new pillowcase. My mother reminded me that I need the pillowcase covers that go between the pillow and <laughs> yeah, the pillowcase. Yeah, yeah pillow you're not a monster. Slip covers, right. We're, I would pay for a tape of these conversations. We're civilized, you know. Hello, Mark. <laughs> it's your mother. Did you get the pillowcases <laughs> that go between the pillow and the other pillow? This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined by tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Happy 2019. You get the first mention. that You're going first in the first show first we're recording mention. in studio of 2019. And we're joined by senior writer Liel Leibovitz. Putting the band back together. Putting the band back together. We're here at Argo Studios in the Flatiron District. Our Jew of the Week this week, threefold, a tripartite Jew of the Week. Three people adding up to one Jew. Actor, writer, Mark Zuckerberg, portrayer Jesse Eisenberg has produced a new film called The World Before Your Feet. And we got to talk with him and the director, Jeremy Workman, and the subject of the movie, Matt Green. So more on that in a bit. And our Gentile of the Week is ISIS investigator Rukmini Kalamaki, whose podcast Caliphate blew everyone's mind in 2018. We're getting we're getting to this a little bit late, but you know what? Podcasts are forever. Someone will be listening to this episode in 2045 and saying... What's Remember? a podcast? <laughs> it will be, well, how will they, in what form will they be getting it? By the way, I love that, that your, your reference is like, not they would be saying, what's ISIS? They'd right? be saying, what's podcast? Because ISIS would still be around, but iPhones, oh, we don't know. No, but I meant they'll be listening to Unorthodox in oh. 2049 and saying, remember when Leah Leibowitz was tall? Remember when only 1% of the world were Jews? Were Jews. <laughs> As opposed to, you know, 63. <laughs> Are we right? Our, our master plan revealed. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my God. Uh, Liel, we have not yet caught up with you since you were in the Holy Land over Holy Day break. You had a meetup Christmas. with uh, our listeners? First of all, that was, yeah, some people call it Christmas, Mark. It's Sorry. okay. We're not fighting the war on Christmas. We've, we've lost the war on Christmas. We've <laughs> given up a long time ago. <laughs> Christmas won. About 2,000 years ago. Um, I was in Israel. It was amazing in so many ways. First of all, uh, we were there with our two children, uh, who we schlepped all over the country. Uh, in what I really can only describe as a sort of like toddler birthright, which is it's just exactly the same as birthright minus the Bedouin tent night and sex and with alcohol. Israeli soldiers. Because instead of sex with Israeli soldiers, you just get crembo like twice a day and you feel just as like orgasmic and it's amazing. You get what twice a day? I don't crembo. know. Crembo. It sounds like a disease you get oh, from the soldiers. Lord, what is wrong with it? You've never had a crembo? No. Okay. Y- you know your inferior malomars? You know, the thing with the stuffed cream and the biscuit you call a snack. So we have that like times a million. Wow. It's amazing. And you stuff it in your mouth. And it's so like terrific. On the Israeli culinary tour that you can conduct oh. at your kosher market after Bamba. A thousand percent. Crembo. Okay. If you could get it, Crembo. And then, then. Uh, we had the pleasure, the privilege, the honor of, of meeting the fans of, of this here on Orthodox in Tel Aviv, which was so amazing. So I look up because I haven't fucking lived in Tel Aviv for, I don't know what, 180 years. So I look up hottest bar in Tel Aviv. This is how lame I am. Like Google, like in quotation cool marks, bar. cool bar in Tel Aviv. TripAdvisor.com. And, 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 and good. <laughs> it's like, hey, anyone on MySpace, do you know a really great cool bar? And My so, friend on Friendster said that you- <laughs> 
And and so and so Ask Jeeves suggests um just a spark called Dizzy Frishdan, which I think like sounds Dizzy Frishdan sounds like name? the name of the best ophthalmologist in Boca. Like how you have problems go see Dizzy Frishdan. I, I like think Dizzy, Dizzy Frishdan is like a forgotten big band like clarinetist. It's just amazing. Is so, Dizzy a name? Because I would like to bring that back. We we walk Dizzy should yeah. freaking be a name. So we walk by Dizzy Frishdan, which is on Dizingoff Street. Ah, and I get it. It's like 5 p.m. and and like we see nothing. It's just like this dusty, stupid storefront. And I see Lisa like this can't be the place. Like that is supposed to be a hip bar. Like it's just dirty. And and then we come back two hours later, and by absolute dane of some miracle, they've put out you know 20 tables on the sidewalk, <laughs> and there are now 160 Thousands. Israelis. Yeah. All drinking Arak and having the time of their lives on like a Thursday afternoon. Like Club going up. Super like kind of connected. Uh, and, and our fans arrived and they were so amazing. Were they we Legion? Have, they were Legion. They were cool. Um, they did the best things in the world. Uh, we have a tape which oh. we'll play later on. Uh, so I won't spoil the details, but love you all. Uh, Stephanie, what's going on with you? Guys, I went to my first bat mitzvah in a number of years, mm. and it was, they're amazing. Um, the, the plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Um, Nothing yeah, changes. This was, a, this was a city Your Yiddish is mitzvah. getting really good. Thank you. Thank you. So this was Jolie Futterman's bat mitzvah. Her dad, Matthew Futterman, has been on the show. Um, they're friends of ours. And it was very exciting. She had one of those really long haftoras. Mm. And you know, like, it's basically luck of the draw how long, what Torah portion and haftorah you get. And hers was like, hella long. And, and you know, and she was so good. She aced it. And she like had a good voice. And it was just like, wow, I definitely was not that poised at 13. Did it feel weird for you to now be further away from the bat mitzvah girl age to sort of be the adult in the room? Well, here's the thing. So afterwards, there was a luncheon, but we did snag an invite to the kids party later. So we're like sort of on the cusp. We were too tired after oh, the luncheon yeah. to go to the kids oh, yeah. party, which I think says that we went to the right party. Um but yeah, no, it was fun. I love it. Enough news about us, though. Uh, Leo, what's going on out there in the wider world of the Jews? Would you believe that the state of Israel called for, wait for it, an early election? I thought it was a, a snap election. A snap election. Do they ever not have early elections? <laughs> That's right. They have the, I don't actually, on a deadly serious note, I don't think that they actually ever had election in the exact time when the election was supposed to be held. Like for us, it's like, oh, 20, you know, 2020, we're going to have like an election. There's like a suggestion. There's like maybe April of next year or like how's September. Their like, elections are on Jewish time is what you're saying. It's so amazing. That's offensive. But here's the most amazing thing. Uh, the most amazing thing is that the front runner in all this business is the former chief of staff, Benny Gantz. Now, Benny Guns, Benny Guns, isn't that the coolest <laughs> I think, name? I think my great great uncle was was shot gangland style with Benny Guns. <laughs> isn't that the best name for G U N Z? A, a Jewish soldier. Ever. Yeah. Let, let's just say it's G U N S. Benny Guns. Uh, no, I think it's G A N T Z. But Benny Guns. Benny Guns. Uh, the super cool Benny Guns. Uh, I, I do. Would you like to know what Benny Guns' positions are? <laughs> yeah. Now, so would I. So would everyone in Israel. Here's the amazing thing, and I mean this truly. I'm not being, you know, sly here. I think this is an unbelievable new approach to politics. Benny Gantz came out and said, I'm not going to say what I believe in. And then people said, well, why not? You're running for office. And he said, well, these are very divisive times. If I say what I believe in, <laughs> it'll just be more division. Can we all just get together? 
It's it's like you know the old stories about the wise men of Helm. It's yeah. like could we? This is it. It's just a thing it's of beauty. Kind of genius, except the if he if he actually does that, right? He, he, he just did. Just, he's, did he's he's he has like according to Paul, he has like seventeen <laughs> seats in the Knesset so just by saying like let's talk about it after the is election. Is Netanyahu gonna lose? Oh no, Netanyahu is definitely gonna win. Come on, now. he never loses. What else is up in news of the Jews? So Ruth Bader Ginsburg missed Supreme Court arguments for the first time ever as she recovers from lung cancer surgery. She is, however, following along with the case. She's reading briefs and transcripts, so she's she's just sort of like not there. She's still working, and she'll still be part of the decision. But, you know, I think the only thing we could do right now is is have another Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie. This time she's played by Christian Bale, <laughs> which would be kind of amazing. In slightly more trivial news, George R.R. R. Martin, who wrote the Game of Thrones uh, books on which the TV show that Liel convinced me to boycott has has been based. Not um, boycott, just, you know. Yeah, I watched spiritually overcome. Let's I, put it that way. I watched three or four seasons of it and then decided that I agreed with you that it was just too nihilistic, that like right. good people can't spend that much time in that kind of. All right, give us the Disgust. news. Anyway, he went on that PBS show with uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. where you where they do your DNA test and find out what you are and talk about what it means. It turns out he's 22.4% Ashkenazi Jewish. <laughs> now, we know that actually these things are not that precise and that the idea of having on, Ashkenazi Jewish genes you isn't that precise. You are telling me that a <laughs> fat, white-bearded man who spends his entire day <laughs> contemplating <laughs> fictitious universes is such a But what's amazing is what's amazing is that um, because a test of his maternal grandparents showed only Irish ancestry, they're now speculating that his father, his grandfather had left his grandmother after discovering she had an affair with a Jewish man. I might have gotten that a little bit wrong, but basically they were like, this doesn't actually make sense based on what you know your family to be. Right. Basically, they've uncovered that that (laughs) mom or grandma was stooping a Jew. And shortly thereafter, (laughs) grandpa threw grandma off the top of a tower and impaled her (laughs) on a stick. The funny thing. Shortly after, that, Benny Gans killed his grandmother. The, Benny funny, Gans. the funny thing is that the other half of the show was Andy Samberg finding out, who's you know very right. Jewish, finding out he's Italian. Right. So this, which is like, awesome, because he can now get pizza with Jason Biggs, who's Italian, not yeah. Jewish. So. So we have three Jewish guests this week. I sat down with Jesse Eisenberg, who in addition to being in a ton of movies, notably playing Mark Zuckerberg in The Social Network, which I recently rewatched. And, and Lex Luthor in that other movie of about course. controlling the world. He executive produced the new documentary, The World Before Your Feet, which follows Matt Green as he walks every block of New York City. Jesse, Matt, and the film's director, Jeremy Workman, came into Tablet's offices a few weeks ago to tell me all about Matt's unusual journey and their very charming film about it. Have a listen. All right, so to get started, could each of you introduce yourselves and explain your role in the film? I'm Jeremy Workman. I'm the director of The World Before Your Feet. I'm Matt Green. I'm the guy who walks around in the movie. I'm Jesse Eisenberg. I was the executive producer. So, Matt, can you tell us a little bit about your project? And um, it's obviously the basis of the film. What are you, what are you doing and how exactly does it work? Um, I'm walking every block of every street in the five boroughs of New York. Um, and also like parks and cemeteries and beaches and other open public spaces. And yeah, I've, I've, I'm about 95% done with it. I've walked over 9,000 miles now with a few hundred left to go. And how, so can you give us a typical yeah. day of walking? When do you start? How many miles do you walk? Sure. Uh, it varies a lot, actually. There's no real typical day. Um, it depends on, you know, I mean, how much daylight there is, which is, you know, based on what time of the year it is. Um, sometimes I have 
something else I have to do on a given day, or sometimes I don't. So I could have a 14 mile, 14 uh, hour day where I walk 23 miles, or I could have a five hour day where I walk 10 miles or, um, so it varies a lot. Um, and certain neighborhoods I move more quickly through if they're kind of lower lying and more open and then other places like, you know, a lot of places in Manhattan are so jam packed with stuff that it's kind of slower going as I look around. And, but this isn't your first major walk walking project, is it? No, it's not. I, uh, not in 2010, I did a walk across America from Rockaway beach, New York to Rockaway beach, Oregon. How long did that take? That took five months from uh, March 27th to August 25th. And you would just walk and then you actually weren't just walking by yourself. You had your sort of your cart. I had a cart. I had a cool looking cart that was uh, an, an old jogging stroller without a seat. And I had a little platform on it and I had a big 20 gallon plastic container and a little cooler and a couple backpacks that I hung off the cart. And I walked around with a cool fluorescent safety vest and a big hat to keep the sun off my face and uh, this awesome looking cart. And so then you, after that, decided that New York was going to be your next. Yeah, I'd been living in New York already um, for years when I started that, that U.S. walk. So, um, so I came back to New York and then I started thinking about doing this walk of every block in the city. I had heard of a couple guys who had walked every block of Manhattan, which I thought was a really interesting concept. Um, it was not a, not something I'd thought of before as a way to experience a place. So I started wondering if I could do that for all five boroughs. And so, Jeremy, when did you decide you needed to film this? Um, well, I had known Matt for like about a decade now. So I had been interested in Matt and his walking projects um, for several years, even predating his U.S. walk. I had just been following him and and a friend of his and had been imp um, really interested in his, he has a blog, you know, that he puts photos on, imjustwalking.com. And, um, you know, it's kind of mundane details of the city. Um, you know, it could be pretty small things like fire hydrants or really big, you know, huge things in New York City, like, I don't like know. Like bigger fire hydrants? Yeah, bigger fire hydrants. But it could also sort of touch on, you know, Carnegie Hall or whatever. So it sort of has this range of the really micro and the macro. Um, so I was really interested in his blog. Um, and as a friend of mine, I just, you know, would always hear about these sort of interesting takes on New York City that seem so different from how I had thought about the city myself, having lived here for two decades. Um, so finally, I just finished another movie. I had some time and I just sort of said to Matt, again, as a friend, why don't I come along on your New York walk and just get some footage of what you're doing? It'll just be me. You know, I won't be bring like a big crew um, and we'll just see, you know, maybe we'll get something cool. And um, I think he was just glad that you know, he didn't have to do it a, a couple couple times alone. And I sort of followed along with him. And that morphed into this long filming process where I filmed him for three years. And I filmed about 500, 600 hours. And he sort of invited me to come along with him on for a, for a big, wide, um, long length of his walk. I didn't walk every day, but um, I did many, many hours with him. Yeah, how much did you walk? Because you're basically doing the walk at the same time. I mean, time. I didn't walk quite as much as Matt, <laughs> but I probably definitely logged a few hundred miles. I definitely uh, went through a number of shoes. I My feet are, are completely thrashed from this project. Um, and uh, all in all, I probably had, like I said, five to 600 hours. I lost track of how much footage. And that then 
we boiled that down into, um, you know, a 90 minute movie. So, um, it was, uh, it was a hard editing project, but yeah, it was really interesting to film and just to get to go along with Matt. So I was wondering when I was watching it, I assumed there was some sort of vehicle that the camera was on, but I found it was actually you holding a camera. Yeah, yeah. I wish there was a vehicle. That would have been easier. Um, I I did the whole movie handheld. Um, I held the camera and walked with Matt. Um, And there was a couple of times when I experimented with, you know, some like devices, handheld devices, gimbals, stabilizers, and nothing ever really worked and everything sort of was 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 um, difficult. So I just kept on reducing it and reducing it and just took a cam- um, a camera and put it on a monopod and basically did the whole whole movie handheld. Um, you know, Matt wasn't Matt was doing his his project and I didn't want to sort of impact it too much. So I would just sort of follow along and where he went, I followed. And, um, you know, I tried to sort of um, stay out of the way a little bit to allow the authenticity and the spontaneity just to happen in New York City. So, Jesse, what attracted you to this film? Um, really, every every single aspect of it. Uh, Jeremy had sent me um, a rough cut he was working on about two years ago. And as he said, he filmed about 500, 600 hours of footage. So I think he, you know, being isolated in a room editing it, I think he wanted kind of like a second pair of eyes on it. And I'll, and I'll tell you, I was just really in anticipation of of, of doing this today. Um, and kind of filtering so many things in my life through the lens of, you know, what does this say about Judaism or how does this fit into like Jewish culture? Maybe just as an extension of my own narcissism, I was watching, there's so much about this movie that is distinctly Jewish to me. Um, you know, you have this, you know, essentially a displaced guy displaced because of his own making, not because of any kind of you know, purge or There's anything. The pharaoh. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, There's yeah. Yes, yeah, in the pharaoh. Um, and, you know, he's this displaced guy in New York and by virtue of his own, you know, curiosity and, you know, uh, an interest in other people and good nature, like kind of assimilates into all these other cultures around the city. And so the movie shows in this really beautiful way, this guy walking into areas that most, you know, that, that most people who, you know, live in the richer parts of New York City don't go to uh, because they think it's dangerous. And here you have this guy going to these places with a curiosity, with an open mind, with an interest in them and seeing how beautifully you can kind of assimilate. And uh, to me, it's like a kind of a microcosm of a Jewish story. And um, I, I, that's really why I think it uh, it appealed to me is because it, it it feels like this kind of familiar tale that I see in a lot of stories. He's literally walking for 40 years. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> now, the wandering just with Jew. a smartphone. Yeah, yeah, he ate a camel in Queens. A lot of matzah. So let's let's talk about some of the Jewish the Jewish content um, since you bring it up. There's, can you tell us about the churchagogues? Sure. Uh, churchagogues are buildings that were originally synagogues, and the Jewish population shifted, and no one, you know, the, the neighborhood is no longer Jewish, and, and the synagogue left and now churches have taken over the buildings. And you coined that term, didn't you? I did, but I try to say it like it's a real term because I wanted to catch on. Right, so, no, right, no, right. Anyone be, listening, yeah. it's been around for a while and you <laughs> sound educated when you say it. Was yeah. there another option in terms of uh, terms? It's, it was only one that worked. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Sin, sin a church, sin a church. Sin a church. You can't yeah. even do half a church with only one syllable. syllable. So it's, it's not, you know, it's not the greatest term, but it, it rolls off the tongue nicely. And so now they are functioning churches. Now they're churches, yes. And, you know, you see, I mean, that's always been an interesting thing to me in general, the idea of places that were houses of worship or things that have become houses of worship, you know, crossing that divide between the secular and the sacred. 
Um, like, you know, when you see a, a bank that's now a church, that's kind of an interesting thing. Or, you know, movie theaters that used to be churches or. Yeah, I'd walk with him in all these sort of different areas like, you know, Harlem or in the Bronx, East New York, Brownsville. And, the, and Matt would just sort of spot these buildings all over the all over the um, the areas. And just, you know, they've all been sort of converted. Some are most are churches now, different different kinds of churches too, different religions. And um, it's really fascinating. It was something that I had never really thought about myself and then just sort of walking with Matt, they just sort of sprout out, you know, in all these places in New York that you least expect them. And the, another thing you see a lot in New York is, is religious buildings that are now condos, which, you know, make for very interesting floor plans and window shapes and stuff like that. Cause you, your window would be like a quarter of a big former stained glass window or something. And that's sort of one way that the city has changed over the years. And I'm curious for all of you, the ways, I imagine you guys pay attention to things differently now. And just if you've taken stock of the way, you know, you have the scene in the Far Rockaway where there are these sort of like open condos that were never built um, before the recession. What What is the biggest way you think the city has changed? I'm actually probably the worst person to give you an answer for that because you know, what I'm doing is not looking at the city as a whole. It's looking at these tiny, fine-grained details of the city. And so I really, you know, lose sight of the city as a whole. And I have, like, and I'm also far more hesitant to try to characterize it in any particular way. Because once you've seen all the details of something, you realize how impossible it is to ever sum it up. Somebody in the film that there's a, a little community of other walkers like Matt, and there's this great um, interview that that we did with a guy named Garnett uh, Cottigan, and he t he had this great line that sounds so obvious, but it it really stuck with me about New York City, which is that every street is like a fossil record, and there's just so many details that you could kind of scratch the surface, and you. And as you scratch the surface, all these things sort of, you know, reveal themselves and they could be historical, social, um, they could be hugely significant. They could be sort of minor details that are sort of embedded in the landscape of the city. And I think that was what was most striking on my end was just a reminder of that. I mean, obviously, we all know New York City is this, you know, is this mecca of historical significance. But it, you forget just like how you could just kind of look at even some of the smallest details and these sort of, you know, huge important things sort of kind of come out of them. And um, that was a real reminder to me too. And I think that said more to me about the city than anything was just the reminder that you could just look at any one small area and like a fossil sort of see the strata of all kinds of interesting things. You just kind of have to like kind of slow down a little bit and look and you'll suddenly things will just start emerging and popping up. I feel like I walk around with, if I'm not looking at my cell phone, I have my headphones in and I've tuned out everything around me. And so why is this, this film, which basically says, look up, why is it so important now? You know, I've, I've kind of removed um, this idea of like having a goal or a destination for my life, um, both my life in general and like specifically when I'm out walking and you don't realize until you don't have a destination, um, how hard it makes it to pay attention to things when you're going somewhere else. And um, so for me, it's not that I, you know, had some great insight that this would happen when I started this walk. It was just kind of a coincidence that by, by removing this idea of like always being on the way to somewhere, um, it just kind of opened up the world to me. And, 
you know, I, people ask me if I listen to music or something when I'm walking and I don't, cause I'm just trying to be out there observing what's going on. And, uh, you know, you just realize how, how much, um, how much of life, like you're trying to escape places in normal life, you know, you're trying to put the music on so you can just get through the space and have it, have the time just pass by and like be where you really want to be. Um, and so I think when you just kind of get rid of all those other distractions or all those other ways of passing time, you're forced to experience where you are and, and to realize how much is there that you've never looked at before. Yeah, but I think one of the great things about the movie, and even though Matt just described like uh, how he's not kind of... Um, uh, how he's not, you know, distracted by modern technology is that the movie is really not a kind of polemic against, you know, inf you know, technology infringing on our appreciation for nature, appreciation for, you know, social interactions. I mean, because uh, also I think that's not in Matt's interest and it's not in Jeremy's interest. They're not doing this. You know, certainly Matt's walk is not a kind of um, referendum on, you know, listening to music while you walk. I think he's just showing, um, I think, the how, how wonderful it can be to appreciate uh, looking at your surroundings and living in your surroundings and, uh, kind of, yeah, not putting blinders on, but the movie, I don't think is, it's not didactic in any way or, you know, a censure against the Yeah. I just like to lecture everyone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I will say I have a lot of anxiety about your living situation. <laughs> it well, caused me extreme I come, stress. I could come watch your cat. No. Yeah. So let's talk about cats. Cause yeah. they are basically like the other character in the film. Yes. Um, yeah, the, the cat better character. The cats. That's the only. We knew no one would watch this thing if there weren't cats in it. Um, yeah, I watch. I, I don't have an apartment, which is how the budget works out for me. I had to kind of cut out rent to make the equation work. Um, so I do a lot of couch surfing, cat sitting, plant sitting, um, anything that needs to be sat, I can handle it. <laughs> um, and cats are based. Cats are really the the bread and butter of of the walk. <laughs> um, that's why you're doing this. That's right? why I'm doing it. Uh, no, cause you know, I can get, you know, someone will go away for two weeks and I'll have a house to stay in for two weeks. And, uh, you know, I just take care of a cat in exchange. Yeah. Matt would call me up when we were in the middle of making the movie and he would just say, Hey, I, I have, I have a new cat. I'm on the upper West side. There's a new cat. It's orange. And I would instantly like a, you know, a, the fire, like a fireman or something like race with my camera to film it. Or there would be a cat that would like drink out of the bathtub or, I like the one that shut the lights. Or a cat out. that was frosty. <laughs> yeah. So there, there was a cat that turns frosty. off the lights. So um, I knew that we had to have a scene with a lot of cats. I mean, there was 40, 50 cats or something that I yeah. saw alone. So. so this is your first executive producer role, is yeah. that correct? Mm -hmm. is, was that always part of the plan or did this project speak to you? Uh, when I was born, my mother <laughs> looked at me and said, you know, he will executive produce something in 34 years. Um no, I, no, not only was it not part of the plan, but I, I have eschewed it multiple times, you know, because a lot of times when you're acting in things, they uh, ask you to produce it as well um, to kind of get the financing early on and to have your name, you know, kind of be part of that. And I've never wanted to do that, actually, probably primarily because it feels like doubling down on something that might turn out badly. But with this, <laughs> I watched the movie, you know, I watched a rough cut and I just thought it was so wonderful. And I also didn't have any interest in producing this. Jeremy asked me, uh, would I... Would, would I would I want to? And I, my first feeling was no, because I, I don't do that and I don't have any like expertise. I don't know anything. And I didn't think I had anything to add to it because I thought what Jeremy had done was perfect. Um, but I watched the movie, uh, 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 you know, twice the day he sent it to me. I showed it to my wife, who's, a, you know, she's 
She's not in the arts. She's a, she's a teacher and she loved it for an entirely different set of reasons. I loved it because I thought, you know, Matt, I can totally relate to Matt. He's a curious guy, looks like me, he's funny. Uh, and I thought it was really entertaining. My wife saw it as, you know, this kind of social justice piece about this guy who's going into the forgotten parts of New York City. And so um, I realized this movie had like such an unusual appeal because it touches on so many things, um, oftentimes in a kind of subtle ways so that you can kind of, uh, you know, experience it in a personal way. And um, so I told Jeremy that uh, I'll do anything I can to help you kind of champion it whether that means executive producing or sending it to people I know or something. And so, uh, so that's what we decided on. But uh, in terms of any kind of creative input, there's nothing I could have said that would have made it better because I thought what he had done was just so, so wonderful. You did probably propose like Wandering Jew as the title. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually just, I was reading the Wikipedia page this morning of that because I was, because I, I, I had a feeling that that might come up today and I didn't realize it's a plant. And, you know, a lot of this movie actually is about the, uh, flora of New York City. And um, I was wondering if there's a wandering Jew. And uh, yeah, but I also, I couldn't figure out, do you know, is that like a, it seems like it's a horrible thing to say. It does. And it's weird that it's a plant. Isn't it like, that's like a, there's like a Jews, there's like something that's also like that. I don't know. Oh, I should know thing. this. Another well, the or there's like a Jews name. ear, some, that, Jews but that's ear. also maybe a plant. Oh yeah, that you're, that a you're Jew, right. A Jews foreskin, I think. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you have to trim them usually <laughs> in the first seven days after they grow. <laughs> I want to get some recommendations. Like what are the best walking shoes? What kind of like wicking technology should we be using? Uh, I want to be prepared. Yeah, I think that uh, I don't think you want to focus on that stuff too much because walking is pretty low impact. And, you know, it's not like running where you can really screw your your feet up if you're wearing the wrong thing. Um, I, you know, I just I just keep wearing the same kind of boots solely because um, I have the calluses in the right place for that type. So I think it's all about consistency. Um, you know, when you watch the movie, you sort of are reminded that this is a really simple pursuit. This is not something that um, should be capitalized or commodified that really anyone could do it. I think that's what's kind of reminds people is that it's, it's, it's not a feat. Like there's this documentary mm -hmm. that's it is, out. It's two feet. Oh yeah. That's funny. Um, like there's a documentary, a great documentary out now, Free Solo, which is about a guy who climbs um, a Yosemite El Capitan without ropes. You know, it's so extraordinary, you know, but what's I think it, kind of interesting about what Matt's doing is it is it's not necessarily extraordinary. It's kind of ordinary, but he is just committed to it in such a way and in such a passionate way with such curiosity that it becomes really interesting. But it is a reminder that um, it's something that anyone could do. It's something that we've sort of said when we've shared the film, you know, that this is really this simple thing that anyone could do. It's not, you know, I don't think Matt, you know, who's sitting next to me would say he's unique. He's just doing what anyone could do. And I think that's comes through in the film as well. Yeah. And I think it's something a lot of people do when they first move to New York, if they're, if they didn't grow up here, I think, you know, you come to New York and I think there's this great curiosity about it and you walk, you know, and you, you know, you at least explore your area. And then I think as your life takes on a roteness, you end up just taking the same block. And as Matt says, or as um, Garnett says, or something like, uh, you know, if you live on 16th street, chances are you'll never go to 17th street because it's probably the only street you'll never go to because it's, you know, it's parallel to the only one you have to go into. And so, um, and so you end up missing, you end up missing a lot. And uh, I think what this movie does and what Matt does is kind of give people permission to go back to that curiosity that was initially so exciting to them when they moved to such an interesting metropolis. 
Jeremy Workman, Matt Green, Jesse Eisenberg. Thank you guys so much. The World Before Your Feet is playing in select theaters in New York, Los Angeles, and Philadelphia. Find out more at theworldbeforeyourfeet.com. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Hey, J. Crew, it's the producer Josh here. Crazy thing, on the upcoming segment, even though we were all in the same room, the guest mic came out all fuzzy because of random radio interference. Even after Sophia did an incredible job cleaning up, I wound up adding a little bit of white noise like that machine they use at my shrink's office to help clean it up. For reasons that will become clear in the interview, I blame ISIS for the noise. Have a listen. Our Gentile of the Week is Rukmini Kalimaki, a New York Times foreign correspondent who covers terrorism and the Islamic State. She's the host of Caliphate, a serialized podcast for the New York Times, which tracks the rise of the Islamic State and offers a fascinating, terrifying window into the world she reports on. Welcome, Rukmini. Thank you for having Welcome. me. So let's start off with, could you tell us about Caliphate, the podcast, for those of listeners who haven't yet binged all 10 episodes? Sure. Uh, so Caliphate is the first narrative nonfiction uh, podcast that, that the New York Times has done. Uh, and I was approached actually by Andy Mills, who's my collaborator and partner um, uh, on the podcast. Uh, Andy comes from an interesting background, much like mine, uh, where he's interested in faith, interested in belief. And we wanted to essentially try to do the deepest look at ISIS 
to date. What do they actually believe? Who, who are they? Who are we really fighting? Um, I think there's been a lot of uh, sort of stick man uh, portrayal of, uh, of this group, uh, two-dimensional, you know, boogeyman, the monster portrayal. And we wanted to see if we could go beyond that and try to touch the humanity of these people who are doing these truly horrific things. Try to understand why, why in the world would this be appealing uh, to somebody. And we found that vehicle through a young man in Canada. Um, he goes by the nom de guerre Abu Huzaifa al-Kanadi, so Huzaifa. And he was an ISIS member who had gone and joined the Islamic State, uh, fought with them, did a number of things uh, on, on their, uh, at, at their command, and then managed to come back to Canada. And it's extremely rare. I've now, by now, interviewed probably between two and three dozen uh, ISIS members, but the vast majority of them I've inter interviewed in jail. It's very, very hard to essentially find them in nature, if you will. Um, <laughs> you can find them in Iraq and Syria, but then if I'm seeing them face-to-face, -face, it means that I'm their hostage. <laughs> when you find um, them in Toronto. <laughs> yeah. You have, yeah. That's where it was, right? In Toronto? Uh, we've not disclosed the place. Where, oh, you said where, Canada. Where it was. It was in Canada. I love, by the way, that it is, his nickname is like Al-Kanadi. <laughs> right. Because, yeah, of course, those Canadian <laughs> extremists, you think of those right. hot-headed. Right. He's also so That's nice, right. and he yeah. says a boat, and, you know, he's That's a real right. Canadian. And he's a, he's a real Canadian. He uh, uses his uh, hands-free you know, gadget when he's talking on his cell phone and he's driving. <laughs> um, it's a law-abiding. He stops at yellow lights. I mean, it's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly. When not stabbing people in the heart. That's now, that's look, right. yeah. I, I know you're a journalist. It's, it's an yeah. amazing, amazing, amazing podcast. And I know that this is the sort of thing that Thanks. everyone kind of like, you know, intellectually would jump yeah. right at. But like right. when the idea started circulating, yeah. was there a moment in which you said like, I don't want to be in this space. I don't want to like immerse myself in this world of these people. It's just too creepy. I mean, that is my world. This is, I've been on this beat now for uh, almost five years and this is what I do. You know, I explain ISIS to the larger public. I happen to find it interesting. I mean, I've been able to sort of intellectualize it enough. Um, I have a number of techniques I use to not absorb uh, the, the horrific things they do. I, I no longer watch their videos um, from beginning to end. Yeah, I, there's only so many beheadings that you know, a human being can You've watch. You've watched some? I've had to watch some. See, I've I never have, watched you know, one. I, I, I should I, probably, should I as a journalist? Is it my job to? I don't know that you need to if you're not covering it. So I've come up with a number of techniques to, to essentially not see those things. Um, and, then, uh, and then I'm focusing on this, which is, trying to analyze them, trying to understand them, and trying to go as deeply as I can in that. And, and in fact, their world is actually quite complicated. We think of it as unidimensional, just, just criminals. It's a lot more than that. There's a lot of doctrine and ideology that goes with it. Um, there's a lot of justification for their acts. And, and as an exercise in trying to understand something that is so different from where I'm at, I find that interesting. And I find it valuable because I think that this is a group that by now, you know, when we published Caliphate, the best numbers we had was that the war on terror had cost the U.S. billions of dollars. Actually, there was a report that came out soon after we published that said it's in the trillions now. This is one of the most costly efforts uh, that the United States um, has undertaken, our country. And, and yet, we, uh, the, the, the vast majority of people don't really understand who these people are. So what does it look like? to be an ISIS reporter? Could you give us sort of a, from the, you know, going on apps to like sure. digging through ISIS trash? Sure. What sure, is the sure. range? So my, you know, my day-to-day my -day existence is consumed with basically one central question, which is how can I get as closely as I can to these people without myself getting hurt? 
right? And so one way is to interview their members in jail. Um, this is a recent phenomenon. This is since, since their territory in Iraq and Syria has started to crumble, that there have been large numbers uh, of ISIS prisoners, both in Syria and Iraq, and also in jails um, in, in Europe and North America. Uh, that's one way. Um, the second thing is to actually go to the territory that they once controlled. Um, back when they were still holding it, you could go right up to the front lines. The front lines, um, I, I lived in Africa for seven years and, and covered civil wars and, uh, and conflict there. And the difference with the ISIS war is unlike the conflicts I covered in Africa, the, the front line was very well demarcated. You, you knew exactly where, you know, the, the ISIS territory begins here, the coalition-controlled territory begins there, which gives you some sense of safety that you can, you can approach this liminal, you know, this, this border area. And in that border area, you often found people that had just escaped from, from ISIS control. And those are sort of primary sources who have just, just, you know, in the days previously encountered these people. So that's another way to report on it. The most interesting way, I think, to report on them is through their internal documents. And this is, in fact, the hardest way. When the territory is being rolled back, uh, when coalition forces are going in and taking building by building, ISIS, like Al-Qaeda before it, seems to have this uh, unbelievable capacity to amass paperwork. Um, receipts, financial reports, budgetary projections, internal memos, letters from commanders. They try sometimes to burn some of it, so you, know, you would find certain areas where they had set fire to the buildings, and then you can assume that it was something quite important. But for much of it, Either they don't have time to destroy it, or they don't think that it's that important. And interestingly enough, intelligence agencies don't seem to be that interested in it, because I would, I would always come after the intelligence agencies had already gone through, and you would find that they had picked through some of it, but they would leave a lot of it uh, behind. And with the permission of Iraqi forces, we were allowed to pick up this material, and that for me has become sort of the greatest window, because that is them... That is them speaking on their own terms. It's like ISIS HR. It's like ISIS HR, right? It's it's like it's like if I went into any of your houses and found your diary or found your personal correspondence or found your bank statement, you know? Organizationally, what is it that they value? What are their kind of like corporate priorities? <laughs> uh, so so number one, they act like a corporation, which is which is I think shocking to many of us still. Um, and that in a way that shouldn't be surprising, this is, a, this is uh, an organization that at its height controlled a territory that was the size of Great Britain, that, that ruled a population that was between 9 and 12 million people, and that had up to 100,000 members, maybe more. You can't run that kind of organization unless you have rules and metrics and procedures in place. So on the one hand, they're extremely top-down. So you see, you see all of these, um, I mean, among, among the most frequent things that I would find would be permission slips from fighters who are in one unit and who are asking permission to go a couple of miles to the left or to the right. Permission from my, my emir to go to the hospital, somebody who's wounded. Permission to go on vacation. Permission to go see my wife, you know? So there's, what it shows is that there's, there's a top-down um, you're not just free inside the caliphate. You're, you're, you're responsible to some higher up. Uh, and there's a paper trail that, that embodies, you know, whatever decisions uh, involving your movement uh, you take. Are they actually interested in governing? I mean, is there any record that they're good at what they do? Or is it just a sort of makeshift terrorist organization that's 
Making they're, it up as it goes along. They're very interested in governing. And it's uh, and this is not unique to ISIS. Al-Qaeda Al -Qaeda did this long before. Uh, but what they're trying to create is, on the one hand, it's a terrorist movement. They're trying to attack uh, the West and anybody that they deem to be, to be an infidel. But the other thing they're trying to create is a caliphate, which is their Muslim utopia, this Muslim empire. And that requires services and governing. And the surprising thing that I discovered um, in, in Iraq is that they, although they were reviled by, I would say, most of the population because of their brutality, they were popular on a couple of specific things. They managed to do garbage collection better than the Iraqi state. Uh, water distribu distribution, electricity. These, these were things that, that are, you know, that, that had been annoyances and, um, and, and uh, grievances of the people living in that area for, for really generations. And somehow ISIS managed to do those things better and they got a lot of points from the population for doing so. So I hope to never have ISIS know who I am or that I exist. <laughs> ISIS knows who you are, right? How yeah. are you in, I mean, but when you're not on the front lines, obviously, but like here in New York, are you in danger? Are you scared? Are you going to go through their trash one day and find <laughs> your name written scrawled on something? <laughs> Next um, up, like how freaked meaning. out are you? <laughs> right. Uh, I'm home alone. Uh, at this point in time, my husband was working the full overnight shift. So he was leaving, he, he, his shift started at 11 p.m. He didn't come home till six. And I live in an old house, <laughs> um, not quite 100 years old, but an old house that's creaky. Uh, and I have two dogs. And, um, and, and, I'm in a, and uh, the other thing is that I'm in a very quiet suburb with, you know, sizable yards and, um, and, and a lot of space be between houses. And at, at around 12.30 a.m., um, my doorbell starts to ring. I mean, let me just say that nobody rings my doorbell even during the day. May, like the UPS man and Fresh Direct. That's it, you know? <laughs> like, like, and Jehovah's Witnesses once in, you know, once in a blue moon. But that's it. You know, like nobody, nobody comes here. And, um, and the person is ringing in this very aggressive, you know, bzz, bzz, you know, knock, knock. And my dog goes crazy. Uh, and my, I have a Rhodesian Ridgeback who is Oh, I love just, those. I love those dogs too. And who's... Um, just so astute and so smart, you know, like he, he, doesn't, he doesn't bark when my husband comes home. He somehow knows it's my husband. Or when our car parks in the driveway, he somehow knows it's our car. But any, so anybody who is like considered an intruder, um, is, he reacts with, you know, the growling and the barking. And um, I, I was just getting ready to go to sleep, so I had just my nightlight on. And my first reaction was to turn off the nightlight so that the person standing outside the house doesn't know which room I'm in <laughs> because I was so I was so freaked out you know at this point thinking to myself like who in the world is this you know like why is somebody you know calling I then called my husband um to see where he was at uh like maybe he'd gotten locked out he's like no I'm at work you know like somebody's knocking the knocking on the door I'm like yeah somebody's knocking on the door and um and the FBI at this point had come to see me maybe twice and they had made clear to me We've put you on, we have alerted your local police precinct. They know who you are. Um, if, you, if you're ever, you know, if you ever feel, uh, you know, unsafe, don't hesitate to call. So I felt, I mean, I, I hesitated because it's, it seems like such a big deal to call 911, you know. But I finally called 911 and then had, had, had just this kind of crazy conversation with the dispatcher who clearly had no idea who, you know, like clearly I was not on, on her list, you know, like maybe I was on some other list. It's but, like, hey, hi, you know? I, I think ISIS may be at the door. 
I was like, uh, <laughs> the dispatch uh, yeah, is like, like, what? Hi, hi, my name is Rukmini Kalimaki, and um, I cover ISIS uh, for for the New York Times. And there's somebody knocking on my door, and the <laughs> FBI has come to see me several times. And I, I think at one point she said something like, "Ma'am, do you think the FBI is threatening you?" I'm like, "No." ISIS. <laughs> I could just see the wheels turning in her head where she's like, she's like, so you're she's saying not. ISIS is at your door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and she's um, like, ma'am, have you been drinking tonight? <laughs> and then she put me on hold for a second um, and she came back on and her tone had changed. And I wonder if at that point they had like plugged in my address or something and, and maybe something did come up and she said, ma'am, we're looking into it. And then she came back on and she said, ma'am, we've just found out it's the water department. Basically, there had been a water main break on my street uh, <laughs> and the water department was going door to door to tell people that, I don't know, that they weren't going to flush their toilets. I, I still don't understand why in the world the municipality thought it's a good idea to go at like, 1230. Knock, yeah, knock on people's doors at 1230 in the, in the morning. Um, you know who would never have done this? What's that? ISIS. Right, because they, they their water department works really works well. well. It's exactly. one, one thing they're known for. No, exactly, and it was completely irrational of me. Like, like obviously, if it's ISIS, they're not going to be ringing the doorbell, you know. Right. But like, it was just this very strange thing that was happening. No, I get you though. Night. It's freaky. Yeah. It's freaky. Yeah. The yeah. um, you know, one thing about fascist movements is they are into order. They do. They they one of the first things they do is clean it's up great. the trash, right? right. Yeah. And there is something kind of um beautiful about it. There's something like, I, one can see why people, including people who don't have fascist tendencies, are drawn to yes. that sense that we're going we're gonna to make all the corners you know, square yeah, and right. make everything right. right. Did you ever find it beautiful when you were in their presence? Like the sense of purpose, the purity of it? The... Look, I mean, of course I know the other side, so it's hard, it's hard to get completely wrapped up in it. But when you speak to their adherents and their followers, this is the thing that they talk about. You know, this is... This is, you know, that they brought order to a place like Iraq, that where, where garbage collection has never been something that, that you know, anybody can brag about. Um, and uh, one of the periods of time when they were, when, when they were ruling the Mosul area um, coincided with this, uh, this lengthy garbage strike that happened in Lebanon, in Beirut, where, where garbage was piling up everywhere, sort of like you sometimes see in Sicily, you know? Um, and so they would do these videos where they would compare, you know, the streets of Beirut, which are not that far away, with the streets of Mosul, you know, and show how clean, you know, they had made it. And it doesn't sound like much to us because we're used to having our garbage picked up. But let me tell you, when you live in a place that where that doesn't happen, oh my god, it's a, I, I it's do a, on, do? on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. <laughs> the yes, side. there you go. Never <laughs> to, mind. Never to think mind. that yeah. your children can yeah. play without, yeah, being in filth. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and without the smell. You know, like the because these these become like cesspools of, you know, of germs and grossness. Um, it was a really big deal, you know, to people. So, um, what are we doing wrong when when handling them, when thinking about them, when making up policies to address them? Sure. Look, in in areas where where we have dealt with reconstruction, uh, and and I realize that probably that 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 phase has passed, but um, early years of Afghanistan, early years of Iraq, where the U.S. went in and actually got into, into, the, into the job of state building, I think one of the things that we got wrong is that we, we aimed for these very lofty, complicated things. Girls' education, you know, in, in former Taliban strongholds of Afghanistan. I completely agree with that. Yes, let's, let's definitely let's educate girls. But, uh, but on that front, you're dealing with ingrained... Uh, encrusted, difficult to deal with 
cultural mores about whether young women, whether girls should be educated or not. These are difficult things to handle. Everybody agrees that garbage collection is a good thing. Everybody agrees that having an electricity grid that doesn't sputter out every day after a couple of hours of use is a good thing. And I think that what we did is that we went for these very ambitious things and didn't, did, didn't address the very simple things. Um, and, and, and those are not that hard to address if a, if a terrorist group is able to do it. You know, um, that's one thing, and I think that we have we have repeatedly misunderstood um, how our presence in these areas, even though sometimes, like I believe in Syria now, it's been necessary, how our presence creates propaganda for these groups to to prosper. Airstrikes that end up inadvertently—it's always inadvertent—killing civilians is fodder for this group. You know, this is this is these are the images that they show. So is Trump right to get us out of Syria if that happens? I think, unfortunately, in Syria, and this is this is based on all of the officials, you know, that I'm speaking to. I think in in Syria, the intervention has really worked, and it has worked with a very minimal cost to the U.S. Um, basically, the, the the Obama doctrine was that it wouldn't be American forces that are doing. That, that are doing the, the invasion and the heavy lifting. It's a local partner that is being supported by the U.S. And by supported, when I was in these areas, you never see American forces. You see Kurdish forces, and they have a Samsung tablet. <laughs> and on this tablet, uh, they, have, uh, they have GPS pins of the buildings that they believe are occupied by ISIS. And on a satellite phone, they're calling in the coordinates to their partners, uh, Americans who are sitting in Baghdad or wherever, who are calling in airstrikes. Right. So, just as a, as an example, in the in the four years of the intervention in um, in Syria, I think the U.S. has lost four four soldiers, maybe maybe five. The Kurds have lost ten thousand, ten thousand to four or five. Right. So it's been incredibly costly to them, and not so costly to us. So, Caliphate was wildly successful and sort of took you from a behind the scenes journalist to an audio star. Um, has that made your job harder as more people know who you are? No, it's actually, in, in a strange way, it's made it easier because the, per, the people that I lose interviews to are people like Christiane Amanpour, you know, who are much more well-known uh, than I am. So, um, you know, literally, I was, I, you know, I flew to Iraq one time to interview this uh, young Yazidi woman who claimed that she had been held by an ISIS member who was American, and I lost that interview to Christiane. <laughs> um, and you know, how, how can I possibly explain to this, to this young girl and her, and her handlers that, that, that she's better off doing an interview with, with me at the New York Times uh, than with Christiane Amanpour, you know? So I think, that, um, I think that the success of Caliphate has opened doors for me. You working on another podcast? I'm not working on another podcast now. I'm thinking of another podcast now. Uh, we, we never planned it as, you know, something that would be season one, season two. Right. Uh, but um, I just tried my first foray into documentary filmmaking. So we have a project that's coming out in the next couple months. And that was a new medium for me. Podcasting was a new medium for me. And of course, writing is what I've always done. And of the three, I have to say that pos- podcasting is, is really rich in, in allowing a depth I didn't, I didn't, Think possible. Um, I'm I'm often I'm often frustrated when I'm doing you know a piece and there's a word limit as there always is, 
and the stuff that ends up getting gutted, you know, from it is the very stuff that I have sort of spent years trying to understand, you right. know, and that becomes the most, you know, it's too esoteric, it's too in the weeds, and that's the stuff that gets lost. And that was the stuff that I felt that we were able to put in the podcast. So that's exciting for me. Totally. Right? Yeah. So before we let you ask a Gentile question, can we confirm, because we've had it, we've booked a few Gentiles who ended up, once we were interviewing them, to be Jewish. Oh, God. And it's been a little problematic. So I just want to confirm that you are definitely not Jewish. Definitely not Jewish. I was born an Orthodox Christian, and I was later uh, rebaptized as a Catholic. You hear that, Isis? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. Were you one in her corner. Were rebaptized as a, as a sentient grown-up as a Catholic? No, as a child. As a child. As a child, yeah. Oh. Okay, yeah. but yeah. in any event, yeah. you are a... a Genuine Gentile. I am a genuine Gentile. A genuine yes. Gentile. Yes. So, um, GG. GG. So, um, one of the things we do on the show is when we have a genuine Gentile, um, or even as it turned out, some imposter Gentiles who were who were Jewish, um, we allow them a question of the week because we are, you know, a panel of Jewish experts. Is there anything about Jews, Judaism, Jewish culture, Jewish history, anything at all that you've always wondered about? It's a safe space. You can ask anything. We don't take offense. What do you want to know? Sure. So, um, so a couple, you know, not too long ago, uh, on Yom Kippur, I uh, sent a WhatsApp message to um, to a dear friend of mine who happens to be to be Jewish. I, I wanted to send her a greeting, you know, on Yom Kippur, and I said, "Happy Yom Kippur." <laughs> and I have since learned that that's not the right way to address someone. Can you explain to me why that's well, I, not the right way? I to I think address the someone? sentiment is very sweet that this yeah. was like you knew mm-hmm. a friend was observing us an right. important day, and so right. you said happy, like we would say. Right. I think you could say in the high holiday season, you could go with a happy new year. Happy new year, Got which it. is which is easy for Yom Kippur. I mean, the problem is if you assume that they're fasting, you could say hope you're having an easy fast. But what if they're not fasting? I mean, yeah. is there a, is there a Yom Kippur? So here are the thing, here are the things you'll often hear Jews say to each other, yeah. right? Happy New Year, Happy you know, New Year. Shana Tova in Hebrew, right? Because yeah. Rosh Hashanah is a week before Yom Kippur. Uh, yeah, a week before Yom Kippur. Right. Um, have an easy fast, which always strikes many of us as weird. We come because <laughs> the point is the fast is supposed to be somewhat hard. Right. But right, people right. say have an easy fast or have right. a meaningful fast. Um, have a meaningful fast. Have a meaningful. I would or have a meaningful Yom Kippur. Hope you have a meaningful Yom yes. Kippur. I like hope that. Have a meaningful Yom Kippur. Meaningful Yom Kippur. If yeah. I because, got that, because it's a moment of reflection. Yeah. Right. So if, even if they're yeah. not fully fasting. Yeah. You know, you haven't made them feel weird about that. Right. It's but it also tells mom. me that you know right. that this is like a big, like a like weird a day, deal. that it's like a, ho- it's a holy day, but not a holiday. Like it's, it's not right. a happy day. Right. Or I'm, I'm going to go, happy. I'm going to go with, with happy Yom Kippur. I think you did exactly the right thing. So. so look, because yeah. we're Ashkenazi Jews, of course we have right. neuroses about everything. Right. And so we've made this into this terrible day, but like actually in like, kind of like a happy day. Jewish theology, it's a super happy day. It is? The horrible yeah. day of judgment is Rosh Hashanah, right? Uh-huh. That's when God opens the books of life and starts making the decisions. By Yom Kippur, yeah. book of life closes like, Decisions, have, decisions been made, have been made. Uh-huh. And we yeah. just celebrate the kind of, right. the fast isn't supposed to be hard. It's not supposed to be torment. It's supposed to be cleanse. It's supposed to be the sort of moment yeah. in which we make peace with the possibility that yeah. one day, so maybe this me- year we'll die and we're yeah. all together. We're all dressed but in basically shrouds and, and kind of just come together take, in this beautiful right. way. What I want to know is, yeah. you've since learned, you said you've since learned that this was not the right thing to say. Yes. Was your friend a bit dickish about it? Yeah. She was very nice about it, but she educated me on it. And no, And the thing is, I then realized... I have said Happy Yom Kippur to so many people. <laughs> just nobody say, ever said anything I'm just to me. Like, I'm telling you, yeah. I'm going to say I think your friend is probably a lovely person, yeah. but I and I don't think it's cool that she gave you 
even the most gentlest form of grief about it because it's a perfectly okay thing to say to someone. And it's always the thought that counts. I mean, you know what? It's like we talk about as Jews, people who say Merry Christmas. It's fine for people to say Merry Christmas to us. They're wishing us cheeriness. And and if you you make people feel bad in any small way, I think that's kind of on you. Uh, I'm totally there with you. never made me feel bad. It was in the, in the, in, in, under the umbrella of trying to teach me something about her culture that I didn't know. Trying to educate you. Right. And right. I, and I appreciate that, you know? Right. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you got three answers, <laughs> three Jews, <laughs> three, Jews. <laughs> three answers. Right. So we've got happy Yom Kippur, happy, Yom Kippur. Uh, happy new a, year, and Merry happy Christmas. New year, have a meaningful uh, Yom Kippur, have an easy fast. All those um, are, we think all those are good. And yes. if she gives you any, I mean, if anyone ever does give you problems about any of those, tell them to talk to us because we are <laughs> take really credentialed Jews. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. We're Community Kalamaki. Thank you for being here. You can listen to Caliphate on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and you could read Rukmini's writing, her excellent reporting in the New York Times. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. crew a bunch of live shows coming up the most important one to know about if you are from washington or maryland or virginia or you just like to drive please know about the show at washington hebrew congregation this is co-sponsored by the association of reformed jewish educators representative elect katie porter one of the blue democratic women who helped flip orange county from red to blue she's already been seated she's been inaugurated she's a new congresswoman she is maybe the first ever single mother of young children to serve in congress and she will be our Gentile of the Week at Washington Hebrew Congregation. Our Jew of the Week will be former unorthodox guest, a food writer, food historian, Michael Twitty. This is going to be a really amazing show. Hundreds of tickets have gone already, but there are still some that are left, and it's a free show. So go to Washington Hebrew Congregation's website. You can find out more about it there. Reserve your tickets and come party with us in the nation's capital, January 15th at 7.30 p.m. That's 7.30 p.m. on the 15th. Now, brand new show. I'm announcing this. You've never heard about this show before. Adat Shalom in Los Angeles, Congregation Adat Shalom. We're going to be doing a Kabbalat Shabbat followed by a live show on Friday, February 1st. The guest list is still in flux. We're still working on some awesome, amazing guests for that one. But we're going to be in sunny, sunny, sunny L.A. February 1st, Adat Shalom. And then the next day, Saturday, February 2nd, we'll be at the Strom JCC. I have been corrected multiple times. It's not Stroom. It's the Strom Jewish Community Center doing a joint show with Dan Savage. Now, listen, peoples. We need your sexy time questions. Remember, Dan Savage is a sex, romance, love, relationship expert. He writes Savage Love. He does the podcast Savage Lovecast, which you all should be listening to. Either email us the questions. You can email them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We will anonymize your names. You can also call it in, disguise your voice however you like, 914-570-4869, and Dan Savage will answer your questions. So see you Saturday, February 2nd at the Strom JCC. You can get those tickets by going to their website. Website. And so earlier we talked a little bit about my uh, spectacular meetup in Tel Aviv with uh, our world's greatest fans in the promised land. And so here's a little taste of what that magical Arak infused evening was like. All right. Hannah, or should I say Hannah. So you led a birthright trip 
that as a result had how many people make Kalia? So far, just one, but I'm going to have another participant slash friend make Aliyah this summer, and he's going to do Grins Bar and join the army afterwards. Safe to say you were a really good madricha. I tried really hard. <laughs> so give us, give us, to those listening at home, give us, give us a sales pitch. Give us a spiel. Why, why, why should we come here to this fair country of ours? Um, it is the only place in the world for Jews to just be Jewish and to be happy and not have to worry about being Jewish. You could sit down at a bar and you have a really good chance of meeting someone who is of the same religion as you are. And when you're dating, you just don't have to worry about having that as part of your list of things to check off. Um, and when you're coming on birthright, you are seeing the things you maybe learned about when you were going to Hebrew school growing up and you are seeing where the stories happened and I was history major when I was an undergrad and I studied Jewish history as well and so I was seeing the places where the things happened and I recommend everyone to go on birthright and everyone to have this amazing 10-day experience and who knows you could have a whole life that happens after it and changes your life direction it's amazing I also noticed that uh, you know you've you've been here for a while now. You've made aliyah yourself. When you order a drink, I noticed you ordered the correct drink. What 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 is it you're drinking right now? Arak and lemonana. It is delicious and delicious and delicious. That's how you describe it. It, it is the drink of the free and the brave. Exactly. It doesn't make sense because it's licorice and lemonade and mint, but it tastes so good. <laughs> Jared, uh, all the way from the University of Vermont, uh, this is a little bit different weather-wise. Yeah, I would say so. I think in Vermont right now it's, I don't know Celsius, but I think on Fahrenheit level it's, I saw it was minus nine this morning, so pretty painful, I would say. And otherwise, here in Tel Aviv right now, I think it's 60 degrees Fahrenheit. 61 degrees Fahrenheit. So I'm enjoying every single moment here right now as opposed to Vermont. Amazing. Hello. Hi. Tell us a little bit about your life here in this country. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm from South Africa. I've lived here for uh, this year. It was 10 years. Um, I just started a new job as a data scientist. And I'm living the startup dream. Hello, Hila. Sorry, I'm gonna come around. Gila. Gila. Oh, I'm sorry. Hi. Hi. Tell us, tell us about life. Uh, well, I'm not sure if you realize that I'm the tour guide from the superstition episode that Skylar interviewed. Guy. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so it's nice you. to meet you in person. A pleasure. Rather than just over the radio waves. Well, thank you for giving us one of our one of our all time great segments. Oh, it's a pleasure. Well, it's really Skylar. She was the. Do you love that place? Do you love a mocha? A mocha? Do I love it? Um. Well, it's really funny because a friend of mine from Panama is coming to visit me in January, and after I told her all about that, she's like, "You have to take me there." So now I have to go there. So it really might be third time lucky. You, sir, are, are a local. Hi, I'm Aaron Katz, and I live in Beit Shemesh and work in Tel Aviv. And you're a father of four? 
I have four little kids between the age of zero and six. So you're, you're, you're here for the, for the long haul. That's why I'm here, Leo. It's Thursday night, and we have guests for Shabbos, and I am at a bar in Tel Aviv. You're like, I'm just going to load up before, before pandemonium starts. Exactly. That was just a little smidge, a little, a little appetizer, a little, little a little midge, a little midge of Liel with the unorthodox a, a little midge Maisel. having a Tel Aviv meetup in December 2018. One extraordinary letter this week I think deserves our attention. Dear unorthodox, I loved the interview with the wonderful Leah Forster in talking about how some of the Hasidic rabbis in her community used the threat of removing the hashkacha, the kosher certification, from the restaurants where she was going to perform, you made the assumption that in addition to being morally reprehensible, such a move would be a misapplication of kashrut. While I doubt that the rabbis in question employ such a tactic often, I actually fully support religious authorities trying to broaden our understanding of kashrut, from being just about the ingredients in the kitchen to considering the broader context, from the conditions of the animals being raised for slaughter as the ethical kashrut movement does, to the conditions of the workers in restaurants. And yes, in theory, even extending to the types of events the restaurant hosts. I suggest you take up this subject in the coming year. All the best, Rabbi Benjamin Bearer. So he's saying, wait a second. Yes, it seems to bother us when when homophobic rabbis invoke kashrut to say that that an establishment uh, can't host a given event. But what about the fact that that progressive forces want to invoke kashrut to say we should worry about more than just how the the neck is slashed in the animal and talk about workers' rights and things like that? That's an interesting point. I am 100% with Rabbi Bear. Really? In fact, I think it should be really extended to all kinds of things like uh, – I'm, I don't know why I'm imagining the Godfather here. <laughs> the service in this restaurant is very poor. It is no longer kosher. No, what about like fairly? You call this a carpaccio? No kashrut's for you. <laughs> no, I think the idea of like conditions of the workers in restaurants, like that's really, really interesting. Like if you're underpaying your your back of the house staff, your kitchen staff, that you shouldn't. I mean, I like that idea. I do too. It does, however, I mean, I, I'm very torn by this because on the one hand, sure, I'd be, I'll, I might be willing to make that trade where some like super ultra-Orthodox establishments, the kosher is used to keep it gay-free. But then if lots of other more modern kosher establishments said, we're going to pay $15 an hour wages and ensure the animals were humanely treated, like all in all, you might get a net gain in goodness in the world. I could, I could work with that sort of, uh, you know, the flourishing of many different little fiefdoms. The problem is I kind of want kosher places to be a place where we all, where Jews of different kinds siege. I don't want like the progressive kosher barbecue joint and the, you know, Haredi kosher. Well, I mean, that also sort of exists based on who, which certification you have, yeah. who, what, who's doing your supervision. That's the thing. It's like already that. so incredibly segmented. like, you know, segmented and, and bifurcated. So maybe that would be a good way to bring it together. It's like, listen, we're going to take everyone's fucked up concerns, everything you could possibly care about. Vegan, gluten-free, animal cruelty, <laughs> bad service, not enough ice in your soda, anything you care <laughs> Free about. Free refills. And we're going to make one super hashkaha. It's going to basically be like the Avengers. You know, like you had all the separate superhero You're kosher uniting movies. them? This is one big is franchise. Captain Kosher. <laughs> yeah, Captain Kosher. Anyway, J. Crew, let us know what you think. You can call us at 914-570-4869 or you can write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Mazel tovs? Liel, have ye a mazel tov? Look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Jew, a somewhat observant Jew, but I, I believe in St. Nick this week. To Nick Foles and the Philadelphia Eagles, 
Fly eagles, fly, baby. <laughs> I literally don't understand anything you just said. Making all of my relatives from West Mount Airy, Roxborough, Bucks County so, so happy. Listen, if you saw that missed field goal and you don't believe in God, I don't know what's wrong in you. Stephanie? My dear friends, Kristen and Andrew Yaffe, welcomed a baby girl last week, Aww. Hannah Yaffe. I'm so excited for them, and I can't wait to meet her. And I would like to give over my mazel tov this week to a wonderful listener who called into the listener line, and and she kind of went rogue because we say that our listener line is for letters to us, questions, things like that. But she just kind of said, I have a mazel tov this week. And, well, it was a great one. Have a listen. Hey, gang. Uh, this is Carolyn Singer. And I wanted to wish a mazel tov to two people. One, my brother-in-law, Michael Singer, who had emergency surgery in Newcastle, UK, uh, two weeks ago and is now out of the hospital in rehab and will be flying back to the United States in about a week. And also to Rhoda Bindiger, who um, was hospitalized and is also now out of the hospital and in rehab. We are happy to uh, see them on the mend and hope that you'll join me in wishing them a refua shalema. Thanks. Bye-bye. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can ask for our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Just put newsletter in the subject line. We often come to you live. We're doing it soon. L.A. and Seattle, baby. To book us or to advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. If you want unorthodox swag, like, you know, coffee cozies or T-shirts or, or, or hoodies, the hoodies are very popular, or onesies for your baby, go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast, on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join the Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, Shira Telushkin, and Noah Levinson. Our editor is Sophia Snyder-Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. And our vacation time wonder intern is Jillian Forstadt. Our theme music is by Golem, who are online at golemrocks.com and did one of the most rocking wedding band performances I've ever seen. They do weddings, not mostly weddings, but they will do them. If you're in need of a wedding band, you want to check out Golem. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Jonathan Maltzman of Kol Shalom in Rockville, Maryland. Why? If you have to ask, you've never heard him give a Devar Torah. And we come to you from Argo Studios, which we think voted for Nancy Pelosi for Speaker of the House. Shalom, friends.